Welcome to your friendly neighborhood film cast, a film podcast hosted by yours truly, Jack. And with me today is Lydia. Thank you so much for being here, Lydia. I am very excited. We have a wonderful movie that we are talking about today, and it is the 2019 film Knives Out, directed by Ryan Johnson. And to give you all a brief synopsis of this, if you haven't already seen it, but hopefully you have, because as we will talk about, it's fantastic. It's so good. So good. It's described by Google as the circumstances surrounding the death of crime novelist Harlan Thromby are mysterious, but there's one thing that renowned detective Benoit Blanc knows for sure. Everyone in the wildly dysfunctional Thromby family is a suspect. Now, Blanc must sift through a web of lies and red herrings to uncover the truth. So, we'll start off with our background and general thoughts on the movie before getting into spoiler territory. So, Lydia, I'm curious what your background is with this movie and what are your general thoughts on it? Sure. I saw this movie after the big wave. So I didn't see it until I think January of this year. So I had heard so many good things and I was kind of waiting for like the holiday movie crowds to watch. And it was so hard to wait, but Mm -hmm. it was so worth the wait. It's, I mean, who doesn't love a good whodunit? This is like the modern take on like Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. even some Hitchcock elements. Like, it's just so well done. I think the reason this movie shines so well is that it doesn't shy away from commenting on politics, on race, yes. on class. It does that so well. Um, that's We have so much to cover. I'll start this with a little story, though. So... One of my favorite little things about this movie is that Harlan, who is a murder mystery writer, he's a mystery writer, that's how he got his wealth, Um, he likes to lean into the drama of that role. So his house is like decorated with items from his books, and even in the fields around the house, he has statues from his own stories. And I was watching and thinking, that seems a little... A little too dramatic to be real. But then I thought back to a road trip my family took when I was 12. We were driving up to Canada and coming back down through the East Coast. And we drove through a little town called Bangor in Maine. Mm -hmm. And that is Stephen King's hometown. Ah, that's why it sounds familiar. (laughs) So we talked with people. We found out where his house is, or what what they say is his house. I just can't picture Stephen King living in a house on a road. But, Jackie, this house, it was basically every stereotype you could think of is like the haunted house on the street. So it's brick, it's got these tall, towering green hedges around it, and this wrought iron fence with spiders and like ghouls and scary faces in it. And there was, I kid you not, a black cat that came out of the pet door and came right up to me and let me pet it. So it was so creepy and dramatic. And I'm like, okay, I can see why Harlan Thromby is like actually making this house the personification of his stories, because why not? Right? Why not? 
That's fascinating to hear about. I wonder, now that you mentioned this cat that just greets you, like, was that like a projection of a cat? Was that even an actual cat? I am convinced that that was Stephen King's. I mean, it was someone's cat. It had a pink collar. I have photos of it from like a digital camera because this wasn't, how old was I? Or what year was it when I was 12? I don't know. It was a long time ago. Um, And when we drove away, I looked back and the attic light turned on. And I, as a child, I was like, Stephen King is up there and he's writing right now. So like my mom kept a rock from the sidewalk and gave it to her sister and like would move it around every time we visited so that she thought it was haunted. So it was a very long love affair with that story. But I mean, it's such a great house. And Harlan Bromby's house, there it comes up a lot. It's its own character in the story. It represents this idea of inherited wealth and classism and all of these other important commentary that you can make about this movie. This house is not just a backdrop. It's not just a setting. It's a representation of the fact that this is a wealthy white family in America in 2019 that we're talking about. Not just a scary house on the hill like in Clue, right? This is, there's a reason this house is here. Yeah, that is a wonderful overall impression of the movie. Um, With my background, I have been a fan of the cozy, I would call it cozy murder mystery genre. It's- I love that term. Yeah, like it's it's warm and cozy, even though it's a murder mystery. It's not too grotesque. Mm-hmm. It's not too gory. It's very palatable. And I played Clue a lot as a kid, and I liked attending murder mystery mm-hmm. parties. So I've definitely been a fan of the genre. And I never saw a full trailer for this. I just saw the little 10-second commercials that would flash on TV every now and then. As I've gotten older... I really try to not watch trailers as much as I possibly can just because I think that they skew my expectations of what a movie is going to be or they might ruin certain plot elements. So I try to not watch them as much, but I do like to read about them. Like I love reading the cast and the director and that's usually all I will need beforehand. And that's all I needed for this. I loved the ensemble and... I know that um, some people might be iffy on Ryan Johnson, but I've enjoyed everything he's made, so I was good to go with that. Me too. I will say the trailer was interesting for this movie, because if you just see the trailer, you don't think um, Marta is a main character. Yes, I was going to bring that up. And it turns out she's the protagonist. Yeah, just from the little bit that I saw, I did not know that she was going to be the protagonist, and that was a very interesting twist for sure. I would say that this was my favorite movie of 2019, and last year, the actual year 2019, I didn't see a ton of movies. Probably if I had to make a top 10 list, it would just be the 10 movies that I saw in theaters that year. And compared to this year where I've had way too much time on my hands to watch movies... (laughs) that 2019 top 10 would look drastically different, but Knives Out would still be number one. So good. good. Yeah, I I love the twist, excuse me, the twisty directions that this movie takes and how it operates on the typical 
level of the murder mystery genre, but it is saying something. It's saying a lot about class and wealth and privilege and morality. And I think it really will stand the test of time by being a product of its time, if that makes sense. I agree. It absolutely does. It doesn't shy away from these issues. I think whodunits often make this good commentary about the world they're set in. If you think of the movie Clue, mm-hmm. what are what are the bad things that they're hiding, the, the secrets they're being blackmailed against? It's these things that we maybe wouldn't care about right now. Mm-hmm. Like the idea of being, you know, a communist is one of the bad ones or a gay man, like these things that aren't shunned anymore, but they were then. And here we have this idea that all of the thrombies are claiming that their wealth is self-made. And we know that it's not. Harlan mm-hmm. did not inherit his wealth, but all of his children and grandchildren did. And what does that... It's it's that, those reasons, that they all are suspect. Not just because they are in the house, but because, as we learn through these interrogations, whenever their wealth is threatened... The knives come out, right? The teeth come out. The masks come off. That's where it comes from. That's what I love about this movie. It does it so well. We have this huge spectrum of people. This is a huge family. We have, on one end, we have the very liberal college student. On the other hand, we have an actual Nazi child. And we have everything in between. And all of those differences don't matter when their wealth is threatened. They turn on the person that they claim was... A member of their family they turn on everyone around them because um, this delusional arrogance that comes with inherited wealth is just represented so well Ugh. I think that this movie does a good job of saying or at least hinting that your ideology isn't what makes you a good person being a good person is what makes you a good person and I appreciate that a lot and it's just wonderful production design It's gorgeous to look at. The costumes are wonderful. It's so colorful and vibrant. And just, it's such a good script, too. The script is so tightly and neatly constructed, and there's so much payoff. And it's just fantastic. I I could go on and on for days about how wonderful this movie is. The Jamie Lee Curtis's pantsuits and then Chris Evans's sweater... And also just the pacing is phenomenal. If it was a little bit quicker, it'd be too fast. And if it was a little bit slower, we'd get bored. But it's just perfectly Mm -hmm. timed where we're constantly on edge. Even rewatching it. You know, I know what happens in the end when I rewatched it this week. But I'm still drawn into every scene because the timing and the plot and the dialogue is so good. It really is. Are you ready to go into spoiler territory? I'm ready if you are. Okay. If you're listening to this, I'm giving you a couple of seconds to turn it on something else if you haven't seen this movie yet, or if you just don't want to be spoiled. I don't know. Okay, I've given people a couple of seconds, so let's go into spoilers. Where do you want to begin? Let's talk about the method of death, right? Such an interesting choice. Yes. Well, I guess when I say the method of death, I mean a couple of things. The assumed method of death versus the actual method of death. So this idea that 
the vials are switched is such an interesting way to kill a character. And Harlan mentions that. Mm-hmm. When he finds out that that's what's about to kill him, he starts jotting down notes, which is so funny and realistic. Yeah, right? he's like, if he's a writer. Yeah, he's like, if I live through this, this is going to make a good story idea. So let me just jot this down. I've never come across this before. Exactly. So interesting. And then we find out Marta is so good at her job and I love her for it. For a lot of reasons, but she's so good at her job that her instincts didn't let her make a mistake. And if Harlan had only listened... That ugh. makes me cry every time I see I this know, movie. But she, she's so good at her job. And I think even in that moment of death, Harlan kind of falls into these patterns of... I think dismissing is maybe too harsh of a word, but... A lot of the thrombies treat Marta as unskilled. She's a woman, she's a laborer, she's an immigrant, and therefore her opinion is not as important as ours. And in that moment, Harlan doesn't, I think, do it intentionally. But if he had listened to her, to what she was saying, and to her professional advice, Mm -hmm. he'd be alive. He'd be well. That's very true. Such a great little twist, though. Oh, yeah. It's fantastic. And I, I love that there's this switch once it's revealed that Marta is technically the murderer, or at least we think she's the murderer, that you all of a sudden don't want them to solve this case. You don't want Benoit Blanc to figure this out. And then there's that other layered twist of, oh, she actually isn't the murderer. It's it's just so good. It's so layered and keeps you on your toes the whole time. Yeah. You think about it, it's really only a whodunit for like the first third of the movie. Yeah. And then we find out who done it, and we immediately want the, to help them get away with it. We want to help Marta get away from this because we already fell in love with her and we already started to get really annoyed by the Thromby family. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so at what point did you realize um, Ransom was like, pulling the strings behind everything? I think for me, it was when Marta gets that blackmail note and she goes over to his place and he's reading over it. And I forget what line of dialogue he says specifically, but she says, oh, how do you know that? And he said, oh, I spent a summer interning for Harlan or whatever. But something about that, I thought in my head, oh, he definitely is behind this. Can we just go back for a minute that scene with the will reading? Where Chris Evans' character gets to sit there and tell everyone to eat shit. And then he gets to watch the will reading and everyone's money is taken away. It's just so satisfying. Yeah, that's such a satisfying entrance for that character as well. Mm-hmm. Even though we've seen glimpses of him throughout the movie before we get to that scene. It's just like such an impression that you get of that character that he comes in there and he's so smug and arrogant and... Oh gosh, and also, I love the little bit of unhinged Michael Shannon that we get in that scene where he's like shoving the cookies in his face saying, you want some more cookies? Have some cookies! (laughs) They fall apart. (laughs) I will say that Ransom, like we're told by basically everyone, and Marta is told by basically everyone that Ransom is an asshole. Like, he doesn't treat his family well or his money well. He he makes the help call him Hugh. And, like, the dogs don't like him, which they're a good judge of character. Mm-hmm. But still, like, he puts on that sweater. He's, they cast Chris Evans as him. And we 
automatically are like, okay, he's redeemable. Marta is also like, I can tell him things. Because yeah. that's how society treats people who look like Chris Evans. Absolutely. That's why it's a perfect casting choice. What are your thoughts on the fake knife at the end? The trick knife? Ooh, I really like that that was planted in the script earlier when Harlan mentions that Ransom could never tell one of his prop knives from an actual knife. And I do really love that whole sequence of him grabbing that knife because that whole time that knife wheel has been sitting there, nobody's used it yet. And we're just or waiting. Referenced it. Like it's a normal prop yeah. to have and to sit in while you're being interrogated about your father's untimely death. Yeah. You're just sitting there surrounded by a halo of knives. Oh, such a great choice. And something that I noticed that I think is very interesting is that throughout all the interrogation scenes, mm -hmm. all of the characters are, the way that the framing is working, they're on the edge of the screen, and the knife wheel is in the middle, and then when Benoit Blanc is finally putting everything together, he's in the center of the screen, in the center of the knife wheel, so he's the donut within the donut <laughs> the describing donut. <laughs> this to us. That's such a good insight. I didn't notice that at all, but now that you say it, that's exactly it. He is the donut within the donut. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, what did you think of the knife wheel? I think it calls back to this. Um, Harlan is this very interesting man who has a lot of money, so how is he going to decorate his house? But I think every time I see the knife wheel is at is during interrogations and then it's at the end. And so every time I see it, I'm reminded that there's a suspicious death and yet detectives are coming to this rich family's home and like in the comfort of their own home, they can sit there and tell their stories and lie surrounded by knives and be treated so politely. I don't know. There's just a lot of little hints to privilege and how the police force works in America with rich people. Something about those knives hanging over their heads and they're just... Sitting there comfortably. Isn't there that old story of the emperor and the knife, like that children's story where the king sits in luxury, but then you see the, the sword dangling over his head on a string, and it represents, you know, how dangerous it is to be surrounded by all this wealth? I think there might be something there <laughs> connecting all of those things, but I'd have to think about it more. I can see that. That's, that's a very good connection. I never thought about that before, but that makes complete sense. And, you know, speaking of the police, the fanboy detective, mm -hmm. so funny. <laughs> we learn so much about Harlan and his mysteries from him. It's such a nice way to build out the man who's dead throughout the whole movie, essentially. Right? We're learning more about him through this guy who's so excited to investigate the death of a writer he likes. That's hilarious. Yeah. And that's a very good device to have this character kind of provide lots of background information that maybe would seem too shoehorned in if it was a different way. Yeah. Like if Harlan would say, oh, this reminds me of my novel from 1978 where this happened and that happened. Exactly. But when Noah Segan does it, it's just funny. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I would say that this also has great rewatchability, even past a second round, which I know that you said you had rewatched it this week and that you're still on the edge of your seat and that the pacing is good. And I think that's why I like it so much is that 
there's just so many little details that you can pick up on that even once you know where the plot is going, it's just kind of fun to sit back and watch everything unfold. And The family dynamics are entertaining. Mm-hmm. Even though you know the plot of the murder, it's still funny and interesting to watch these people interact in their lives, go through this hard time, see how they respond to these challenges. It's just entertaining. It's honestly a good movie. It's not just an important movie and a modern take on these old things. It's also just a solidly good movie. I highly recommend it. I would highly recommend it too. And I'm so glad that you wanted to talk about it. It's so good. I mean, I can talk. We can talk about so many things with this movie. Anna de Armas, I think is her name, right? Marta? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not that she wasn't known before this movie, but this was one of her big roles, her big breaks. And it's so such an interesting choice to have this big cast. And then the protagonist is this relatively unknown person. It's, it's an interesting choice because she's also the character that you, that's unknown, that's shifted to the side. So you want to see more of her, watch the movie. <laughs> if you want to see Chris Evans in a nice chunky sweater, watch. If you want to see Jamie Lee Curtis in her pantsuits, like, watch the movie. If you want to see a house with, like, secret entrances and portraits that open up to, like, a secret side door, watch the movie. Don't you just want to take a tour of this house? Oh. I definitely want to see the house. Yes, I would love that. <laughs> and if I like to think that if I were a mystery writer with like $80 million in the bank, I too would make a very interesting place to live with like my stories personified out in the woods. You know, I would have, he has all of those like dolls and murder weapons around his house. It could have very easily leaned into a clue situation where these different murder weapons are used, but no. Mm-hmm. We're using modern science and a classic knife to the throat. Ugh. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up Ana de Armas, too. I'm very interested to see where her career goes from here. It's kind of a shame that the pandemic began right after this movie was released because I, I don't know all of the movies that she had on the docket. I know that she's going to be in the next James Bond movie in some capacity. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see her and Daniel Craig together, but have a different dynamic. Oh, that's such a good point. That's so funny. Yeah. Because they're the Sherlock and the Watson in this movie. Yeah. And now they're going to be in James Bond. And I also, I heard that they are making a Knives Out 2. Yes. Which... I mean, it's a mixed bag sometimes, because this is a good, solid movie. What could they get out of a sequel that isn't too heavy-handed? Yeah. But at the same time, I want more of these characters, because they're so interesting. It's a tough, it's a rock and a hard place, my friend. It is. And as far as I know, the only character that they'll be carrying from the first movie to the second is Benoit Blanc. So I think it will be a completely different case, a different cast of characters. And I think Ryan Johnson is going to be writing and directing this one too, if not directing, writing at least. So I hope that the quality is still the same. And after the year 2020 has occurred, maybe there's going to be a lot of hot takes he'll have on other societal issues by then. Let's hope. What if it's like... Blanc is behind a Zoom call the whole time, and they, like, have to carry him around the house. (laughs) 
as he tries to put pieces together. You know? <laughs> yeah, it, it could work that way. I do remember seeing this Twitter conversation right around the time that the sequel was announced. Somebody, I wish I could give this person credit, I don't remember who it was, tweeted, wouldn't it be funny if in every Knives Out movie, Benoit Blanc has a wildly different accent and it's not explained? And Ryan Johnson responded saying, I did actually think about that. Like, I've considered that. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, I hope it happens. His accent so funny and also so annoying and maybe i don't know enough southern people but is that an accurate accent of any kind i don't know because another movie where he has a southern accent is logan lucky but it's a completely different accent so i don't know if that was intentionally extreme or what he was getting at but it seems like there is like intent behind that wacky <sighs> voice that he has in this one yeah i think he's trying to go back to those like hard-boiled gentleman detective mm -hmm. era kind of thing and i mean when ramson comes by and calls it csi kfc like that yeah. is hilarious that is so funny i laugh every time interesting choice of accent for sure it is do you have anything else that you would like to talk about i know that there's so much more that we could talk about, but just anything else that you want to get out there for the world to hear? For the world to hear? I don't think so. Yeah, I think it's a self-explanatory movie. Just go and see it. I've considered doing recaps, but I think that it's better to just review rather than recap everything and just give general thoughts, so... I agree. And the movies on your list aren't necessarily so obscure that they need a yeah. ton of context. Like, you give an explanation, and they can always watch it and come back, right? Yeah. Which is the goal, right? We want people to, to watch yes. movies. Spreading the good word about movies. That's your tagline, right? <laughs> that should be. You know, it might be. I don't know in what order these episodes are going to air yet, but uh, if it's not in this episode, it will be by the next. Perfect. Mm. Something that I've decided to ask guests is, have you watched any good movies lately that you would like to recommend to people? It doesn't have to be related to Knives Out or whatever movie we're covering, just anything that you want to tell people about to go see. Absolutely. So... I'll mention a couple. One mm -hmm. is related to this movie. So I don't know if you saw this. It was called Ready or Not. It was like a horror comedy drama. I thought it was a little funny, but maybe it wasn't intended to be. But it is yeah. a horror film where like a woman marries into a rich family who does board games. That's how they got their wealth. And so Mm -hmm. She discovers that their kindness turns on her in an instant, and she has to survive playing hide-and-seek in this house that has all these board game booby trap kind of things, which I thought of after watching Knives Out again. So if you like Knives Out and you can handle more gore than is in Knives Out, you might want to look up Ready or Not. It has a great final girl, like the trope of the surviving one-woman character, and it's more great commentary on wealth and inequality in America. So highly recommend. I also 
watched um, a movie called Thoroughbreds the other week. I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe you should add it to your list. It's about, it has the girl who's the main character in A Queen's Gambit, which is every, like what everyone's watching, the chess show. Ooh. It's got Anya Taylor-Joy. Yes, yes. I love her. That's it. And it's got this other girl I really like. And they're essentially both loner sociopaths and they decide to commit a crime. Okay. But they're in this really wealthy suburban neighborhood. It just has this chilling calmness to it that I think is really interesting. And now that I'm talking, I think it comes across that I watch a bunch of like horror gore <laughs> movies, but I really, really don't. These were both a little out of character for me, but still very good. I appreciate that. I'm going to have to watch both of those. They've both been movies that I've been intrigued by so I'll have to actually give them a watch sometime so I very much appreciate those recommendations and I hope other people do too you're very welcome and I get what you mean like sometimes I'll go on a streak of watching a certain type of movie Mm -hmm. and I don't want people to think that that is just me I I just like to watch movies in general it doesn't matter what genre or uh the level of intensity I just like to watch stuff I'll tell you what in February of this year, I got into this mood where I wanted to watch zombie movies. So I watched every single zombie movie I could get my hands on, like TV, Hulu, Netflix, all of the Ooh. different streaming services, except for the really bad gory ones because I can't handle that. But everything else I watched. And then a pandemic happens. And part of me oh is like, gosh. is this all my fault? <laughs> Because I was so in the mood for zombies in February of 2020. So apologies if it is my fault, obviously. But now I've seen a lot of zombie movies, too. But that's not even, that's not me, usually. You just get into moods. It just happens. I get that. I completely get that. And I don't think that you summoned the pandemic. So you're good. (laughs) You can rest easy. I would say that for this podcast, I would recommend a movie that I just watched last weekend. I watched it on Thanksgiving, actually, and it was due to your recommendation, Lydia. And it's going to be a movie we'll be covering at some point, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes. Which I have to say in my preliminary top 10 of 2019 after watching many 2019 movies, right now it's at 2 right underneath Knives Out. So it really shot up there. Wow. I think, I mean, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, it's fantastic. I can't wait to talk about it more. I'm excited for that. And if you want to watch what's described as a hillbilly heist movie featuring Daniel Craig with another Southern accent, please watch Logan Lucky. It's a really good time. Uh, That's all I have for recommendations right now. I'm hoping to watch... Um, quite a few movies this weekend, so hopefully I'll have some more stuff to recommend the next time an episode is recorded. I have to say, you know, if you haven't seen Clue... Oh, yeah. (laughs) You should watch Clue. (laughs) Maybe we should have led with that. If you are into Knives Out and you want more of that, make it a movie night. Watch Knives Out and then watch Clue. Yes. And you will be so happy. (laughs) Absolutely. So this has been an episode of your friendly neighborhood film cast. Lydia, is there any 
social media or any projects that you'd like to plug for listeners? I'm occasionally on Twitter at Lydia May Welker. And if you want to talk movies or books, I'm there. Come find me. And you can find us on social media. We don't have social media set up just yet. I'm waiting on the logo and all of that stuff before I create accounts. But uh, I will put it in the show notes so you can find it there. And thank you for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.